This is John Hagedorn with 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. And today we have a very special guest with us to talk about his new book. His name is Brian Dunning, and a lot of you might be familiar with him. He's the creator and host of Skeptoid Podcast, which is one of the big ones out there. He's had it for a number of years and established a tremendous reputation. He's got a new book out called Conspiracies Declassified. Now, Brian tends to be the buzz kill master of all conspiracies. So, Brian, hello. It's great to have you on today. Thanks for joining us, and please tell our audience a little bit about yourself. Hey, uh, it's, it's great to be here, especially in the in the guise of Mr. Buzzkill. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so, uh, like you mentioned, I've been uh, hosting the Skeptoid podcast since 19, uh, 2006, I almost said 1906. That would have been a really long. Uh, I, so I'm a science writer by by trade and, and by background. And uh, the Skeptoid podcast is something that I started to discuss kind of the, the true science behind some particular urban legends. So it's been weekly for uh, over 11 years now. Got uh, 626 episodes, I believe. Wow. And... And, and conspiracy theories are one of my one of the basic story types that I cover. I cover that. I cover paranormal claims, urban legends, alternative medicine fads, kind of just these these different categories of things in pop culture that it's not just that they're not true, but that, that they have something real interesting, some some true science behind them. That's that's a fun, neat, positive, educational thing to talk about rather than simply being negative and saying, hey, your urban legend isn't true. We try to find stories that are really neat to learn about. They, they have some Easter egg inside of them that's something fascinating you've never heard before. I like the way you sectioned off the book, uh, divided it into eight parts. I'll list them now uh, for our listeners, uh, so it kind of right. gives us a, a chronology here to work with. The first one is Those Who Run the World Conspiracies, and then we've got Government Oppression conspiracies, suspicious deaths, and I think that's going to prove extremely popular in this in this discussion, mm -hmm. War, wars, suppressed science, space, urban legends. And then part eight is the, the most popular. This is the one that one of the first things the publisher requested <laughs> when we were talking about it. Conspiracy theories that turned out to be true. Yeah, yeah. That's I just, the number one request I get. Let's start at the beginning, and let's start back with those who run the world, and maybe share with us one I would like you to discuss is the Denver airport. I had not heard of that one before. Maybe you could oh, start okay. there, and then and then well, pull up your next hottest subject in that uh, theme. You know, initially when when some listener wrote to me years ago and asked me to do an episode on the Denver airport conspiracy, I had the same reaction as you about the Denver airport. What the heck is that about? And it's it's astonishing how deep this rabbit hole goes. Uh, what people think the Denver airport is all about. Uh, it's got some really odd pieces of art in it. It's got some inlays in the floor, and people interpret all of these things as being the new world order revealing to us what their plans are for the extermination of humanity. Hmm. So the basic idea is that the Denver International Airport uh, was built as a headquarters for the new world order from which to launch their global domination and their extermination of law-abiding citizens. And, um, and people believe that great, with great seriousness, uh, okay. great earnestness. If you go to YouTube, you'll find endless videos about it. Did they build a lot of subterranean passageways down below the airport? Uh, yeah, so, so the, the story goes that um, what you'll always read about is uh, that they started by building a bunch of cement buildings, but then they covered them up and gave the excuse that they were built wrong. I don't know why they come up with that, because there's no attribution for a quote. Nobody ever said that they were built wrong. That's silly. Um, Denver Airport was supposed to be the first installation of this brand new automated baggage handling system. So it was all underground. It was all robotic and automated. These ro robotic carts would pick up the uh, luggage and take them to these, um, these um, what do you call it, like conveyor belt type things, uh, and, and transport them automatically, route them to all this, the right airplanes and throughout the airport. And that's what the underground passages were. Um, they still exist. However, the automated baggage handling system never worked very well, and now they simply use those tunnels for conventional baggage handling. Uh, but they're still there, and people work in them, and you can 
go and interview people who work there, and they'll look at you strangely when you ask them if they are aware of any uh, lizard people or aliens living down there with them. <laughs> it's yeah. Let's get to the Bilderberg Conference. I've got a I've got a friend over in England, Tony Gosling. I don't know if you've ever heard of him before. He's a definite muckraker when it comes to the Bilderberg conspiracy. But I'd like okay. to get your take on it and explain to our listeners a little bit what that's about. So, yeah, so, so the, the conspiracy theory is that there is a group of powerful world leaders who meet in secret. And these can be people from business, government, the military, corporations, whatever they are. And they meet annually about once a year in some luxury hotel somewhere in the world in complete secrecy with massive security, and they basically hold their plans for what they're going to order all the nations to do as part of this kind of secret world government. That's, that's the conspiratorial belief. What the Bilderberg group actually says about themselves and what they publish on their website, there's actually nothing secret about their meetings at all. It's, it's fully published. They have press releases. Press does attend. Um, it started after World War II with the rise of the Soviet Union and the rise of communism, there were some nations in Europe who were worried about how they're going to deal with this changing world, and they wanted to meet with officials from the United States. And so the first meeting uh, had world leaders from throughout Europe, West, Western Europe, and the United States, and they met at uh, the, the Bilderberg Hotel, uh, I believe in Switzerland. Um, and this was their first meeting. And in order to kind of foster open discussion. They wanted to make sure that this was done in an unofficial capacity. So the meetings are held under something they call the Chatham House Rule, which is kind of a, a protocol for a meeting where we record generally what was said, but we don't say who said it. So um, they, they, keep these, uh, they keep these notes of the meetings under this rule. They don't publish who says what. Um, they do publish the kind of the general agenda, what they're gonna talk about during the meeting. That's all available on their website. But in order to encourage open conversation, the attendees are guaranteed that their names won't be used in attached to any quotes that they may have said. And that's, you know, that's the strength of the meeting. That's why it's useful is because they, they guarantee the members that sort of anonymity. It's also a completely different group of people each year. There's only a, a few dozen people who, who attend more than one of these or who attend several in, in a row. It's mostly new, new invited different people. So how a group like that would manage to uh, ex exert control over all the world's governments and why world governments would willingly hand over their sovereignty to this kind of motley crew of random people um, has not been convincingly argued anywhere that I have seen. Yeah, I know Mr. Gosling believes uh, that they're pretty much uh, responsible for what we call the New World Order. In fact, mm -hmm. I was checking up on that this morning. I didn't write the name down, but there's a top guy that belongs with that Bilderberger conference. And he said it's the duty of certain of those invited who were in positions in their country to enact laws, to follow the directives of the Bilderberg conference. It's not that it's mandated in any way because they're obviously not in a position to mandate anything but that if you're going to be invited back, you are expected to produce something for them on the other end. So I thought that was kind of interesting because I didn't know I didn't know anything on that end. And yeah, well, I mean, that's, that's obviously you, you hear that a lot from the people who believe kind of the conspiracy version of this, but I wonder how they were able to make that determination because everything that's published and everything that the attendees actually say about it is in direct contradiction to that. So, you yeah, know, <laughs> I was surprised to see Henry Kissinger's name on the invitee list and I also spotted Peggy Noonan, who's known as a columnist on there. So it's obviously open. Yeah, Henry Kissinger has actually been one of the main organizers ever since, uh, uh, for, for decades. Um, uh, he was, a, what do they call it? A, a, I'm not good at French, a rapporteur, kind of a, a moderator for many of the sessions. So he actually stands up there and guides the conversation. Are there any, are there any big ones from those who run the world before we move on to uh, government oppression? Um, well, you know, a lot of these are, you, you can't avoid the whole subject of anti-Semitism because anti-Semitism is rampant through many of these types of, of conspiracy theories. That's why we have mm -hmm. the Rothschild banking family, which was powerful in the 18th, 19th centuries. Um, we have them blamed for so many of the world's ills or charged with actually secretly controlling the world. We have the, the Zionist conspiracy theory that... Uh, you know, Zionists control the world. Uh, 
so many of these have that running through them. Um, it, it's just it's going to come up no matter which of these we talk about. Um, <laughs> you're but yeah, let's right. move, we can move on to government oppression because that's it's incorporated in there as well. Let's start with FEMA prison camps. So FEMA prison camps are um, another one of these sort of internet-generated, uh, almost a meme. But uh, so a, a number of people decided that uh, there was here. There's some vacant lot or something that seems to have a fence around it, and they kind of make a jump that uh, therefore this must be where uh, the government is planning to. Uh, incarcerate law-abiding citizens as part of some plan to either prepare them for orderly extermination or or whatever the, the plan is. But uh, the belief is that there are a large number of fully staffed, ready-to-go prison camps all around the United States, ready to accommodate with the capacity to, to hold millions of people um, and, and, and to handle their extermination. The only thing that's lacking is any photographs, any compelling reason, any... <laughs> Any evidence at all? Any interviews with someone who works there? We, we don't have anything like that. Uh, we just kind of have these unsourced claims and uh, a few photographs of average businesses. In fact, for a long time, uh, Denver Airport was also considered to be one of these FEMA prison camps because it has uh, a fence around the runways. Well, every international airport in the world has fences around the runways. We're trying to keep animals and things from running out onto the runway. So it doesn't necessarily mean that it's uh, intended to be a prison camp. I really, I really enjoyed your research and write-up on the Branch Davidian situation. I, that was some, that's something I was hoping you could share with our listeners in terms of, uh, of what really happened there, because I think a lot of us have a kind of a one-sided view of, of government intervention there. Maybe you could uh, share your research on that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's easy to talk about any of the specific claims, like— uh, uh, oh, the tanks had flamethrowers on them, and and you know we can we can then look and see what the tanks actually had and what was actually being done, and you can kind of debunk the individual claims one by one until doomsday. But you know it's really the overall idea, which is that uh, the government is actively engaged in warfare on its citizens and um, set out specifically in order to kill all the people in this camp. First of all, that would have been really easy to do if that's all they wanted to do. All they needed to do was just to charge in and kill everyone. It could have taken them half an hour to do. It wouldn't have taken them two months. Mm -hmm. um, what, what, what happened was that here is these, these doomsday cultists. They were very open with the fact that they expected and planned to die by fire inside the compound. And they had all of these children. I'm misremembering off the top of my head. It was several dozen children were inside here. And they were really the FBI's main concern. How do we protect these kids? Because these people are going to kill these kids. You know, it, it initially began as trying to serve a search warrant for all these weapons violations that the people had. And, you know, there was allegations of child abuse, whatever. But really, I think it was mostly about trying to just arrest the people for the weapons violations. But it quickly grew when it became clear that they planned and expected to die inside and they had all these kids essentially held there, you know, with the, with no choice in the matter. How do we save the kids? Well, they were able to save about half of them, mm -hmm. which was, you know, a about huge victory. Them, I, think, wasn't it? I think so, yeah. And they were able to save them basically by buying them. They would sell David Koresh, the leader. They would sell him radio time in exchange for releasing kids a few at a time. Yeah, that, was, that was a very interesting story. How about fear of vaccines? A lot of us have a natural fear of, of vaccines. What was it? What did, what did Jimmy Carter introduce? Introduced a vaccine. This was during his uh, four-year term. Oh, was, swine flu. The swine flu vaccine. And there was a lot of people very distrustful of, of the government's call on that. Uh, could you yeah. share a little bit of that with us? Let, let, let me talk about one particular aspect of it. I mean, obviously, in the book, we talk about the whole thing in general. But I want to I share something that the vaccines are actually killing us conspiracy theory has to do with has in common with the fluoridation of tap water is actually a poison designed to kill us these two things because they're very very similar and what they go back to and this is the fascinating part when i was talking about at the top of the show talking about how i like to find the new angles some historical context for these stories that people may not have been aware of Think back to the movie Dr. Strangelove with the crazy general, Jack D. Ripper, and he goes off on his lecture about how fluoridation is 
uh, a communist plot. That's actually, that was told tongue-in-cheek as a joke, but that's actually the genesis of all of this. After World War II, the rise of communism, Americans were very skeptical about anything that they perceived to be socialism spreading within the United States. Socialism slash communism. You know, that's why we had the whole McCarthy era and everything. And anything like a public health measure smacks very much of socialism. So right away, anytime you propose a public health measure, something like this, especially when it's government mandated, government controlled, you've got immediate skepticism about it. So it's got this built-in feature of distrust. Vaccinations, fluoridation, these are both very much in line with this. So there's native distrust of it immediately, just right off the bat. And you know, although we may say, hey, that was a Cold War feature, it doesn't really exist anymore. No, it exists, uh, it's, a, it's alive and well. This distrust of the government for fear of socialism, communism, totalitarianism, Obama's throwing us all in prison camps to take our guns, whatever it is, it's alive and well. Uh, I, you, had, you had added an interesting side note uh, in that story about uh, Ben Franklin and his son. Could you share that? Yeah, so Ben Franklin um, delayed uh, inoculating his son um, and his son then died, and he expressed uh, he expressed misgivings, and he encouraged other parents don't make the same mistake that he did. This is something that I hadn't heard of. In, in fact, the publishers actually gave me this little anecdote. Uh, I hadn't encountered it on my own, so I had to look it up and track it down, find the original source, and and he wrote about it. and And, and I give the passage that he wrote in the book, which is which is quite touching. Okay, suspicious deaths were there. <laughs> let's start with, death, let's start yeah. with Elvis. You know he does live, is that correct? <laughs> uh, it's it's so funny when you look at the uh, the FBI vault, which is a website where the FBI puts a lot of documents that have been released either through Freedom of Information Acts or other other releases. It was it's kind of their effort to uh, quiet down all of the requests they get for all of these documents on all of these cases. And they've got hundreds of pages on Elvis sightings. <laughs> uh, you know, they, they, the FBI has to write a document recording any report that they get about anything. So if I say that I saw Elvis in the supermarket yesterday and I call the FBI, someone's on the other end of that phone and they have to write down, someone called me and said he saw Elvis in the supermarket. That gets on a piece of paper, that gets put in the Elvis file, and now it appears on the FBI vault website. Now, the flip side of that coin is that a conspiracy theorist can go to that website, show that document, and trumpet it to the world as official FBI acknowledgement that Elvis was in a supermarket yesterday. That's kind of one of the banes of my existence as a science writer doing what I do, <laughs> is because people take the evidence against their claim, and they just twist it into evidence for their claim. Mm -hmm. it, it, it never ends. The, the controversy about JFK still goes on. Uh, it's just amazing to me to see how often that comes up in the news. Yeah. About, uh, about every month, a book is published somewhere in the world with a new theory on the JFK assassination. It, it's true that it never does end. And, and your, um, your take is pretty much one shooter, right? Yeah. The, the, um, really, the definitive work on this was... Again, I'm talking about books. It was one of these books. It's a 1,600-page book the by, Report, right? by Vince Bugliosi's book. Oh. I believe it's called History Reclaimed. And so what Bugliosi did is he went and he did all of the work on every conspiracy theory claim, tracking down every little lead, following every little thread. That's why the book is 1,600 pages. Hmm. And when I looked at that, I said, this is really the definitive work on JFK conspiracy theories. Okay. How am I going to distill this into a 12-minute podcast? That doesn't work so well. That's, <laughs> that's uh, about 140 pages per minute. So I had the same issue with uh, you know, a three-, four-page chapter in the book. So rather than try to address all of the many claims, because that's already been done ad nauseum, and I give Bugliosi's book as a reference, um, among other references, of course, um, what I did in that chapter was simply to talk about kind of how and why these these theories appear, why people want to believe them. You know, some topics are just too deep to, to even dip your toe into without seeming like you're doing a, a slipshod job. So 
Yeah, when you say uh, why people want to believe in them, it's true. I mean, there's just you would just much rather have seen it happen a different way. How about Tupac Shakur? What was the story there? Yeah, this is one that I hadn't done a podcast episode on. This is one that the publisher requested. So uh, I did a podcast episode on it as part of my research, Kill Two Birds with One Stone. <laughs> so really what, what, what this is is, Two two rappers. They were they were each killed by their by their rival. You know their associates. Um, one was killed, and then that person's associates killed the other one. Um, but uh, there's no there's no known trigger man basically, and so that's given rise to people saying, "Oh, the LAPD conspired to murder them," or whatever it was. I mean, there's there's all kinds of there's all kinds of theories. Some of these theories are promoted by their surviving relatives. Really what it seems like what happened is that um, gangs aren't in the habit of sharing information with the authorities, particularly with the police. And when we have a case where uh, someone was killed, whether it was killed by your friends or by your enemies, you're sure as heck not going to tell the police about it. So the police really are in over their head. I don't think they're ever going to be able to solve this. Uh, The people who know have either already been killed themselves or simply aren't about to ever share it with the cops. So whoever killed them is certainly known to some of their uh, associates, some of their gang-related associates certainly know, but it's not likely that something ever to be uh, reliably proven to the satisfaction of law enforcement. Uh, in, in your book, Conspiracies Declassified, you say that to qualify for inclusion in the book, number one, the conspiracy has got to be specific enough to be falsifiable. And two, it must be known by the conspiracy theorist before being revealed by the media or by law enforcement. Yes. I wanted to ask if the Marilyn Monroe conspiracy ever crossed your desk and and pretty much what your take is on that one. That one has not crossed my desk, so it's not something that I've done sufficient uh, research on to be able to uh, give any kind of an opinion that I'd want to stand behind. I have to give a very disappointing answer like that when it's... uh, (laughs) Okay, wars, Pearl Harbor. Give our listeners a little bit of a taste on uh, the Pearl Harbor conspiracy. In other words, that we knew first and we pretty much allowed it to happen. Would that be the conspiracy yeah. angle that uh, is pretty much the one that's out there? That, that is the conspiracy angle. And what's that, your take uh, we, on that? We had specific knowledge that it was going to happen and we allowed it to take place in order to, uh, in order to let, to, as an excuse to start World War II, uh, the war in the Pacific anyway. And, uh, you know, some of the evidence is that uh, our planes were grouped together on the runways where it was very easy to strafe them all and destroy a large number of them. Um, But we kept our largest assets, our three aircraft carriers, well away from Pearl Harbor, safely out at sea where they weren't going to get attacked themselves. All the battleships and everything like that, the less important assets we had tightly grouped together where the Japanese planes could easily get them. And so people look at these things and they say, well, you know, it's clear that we were we not only we knew that it was going to happen because we had this intelligence, we'd cracked their codes, uh, but uh, we made it easy for them to give us a give us a black eye without killing us. So you know it's it's a it's a conspiracy theory that uh, that has a lot that sounds logical, that sounds persuasive when you when you just hear kind of the uh, the thirty thousand foot view like that. But when you look at each of these claims individually, they every single one of them falls apart. Um, we have good documentary evidence that nobody knew that uh, that an attack was imminent. However, a lot of people suspected an attack was going to be made. The weight of the evidence that we had at the time was that any attack was likely to come from sabotage. It was likely to come from people on the ground. Uh, sabotage, demolition, things like that, espionage actually taking place there on Hawaii. And when you're trying to guard your aircraft against spies, you group them together way out in the middle of the field where it's very easy to guard them and where nobody can approach them. And that's kind of one example, a microcosm of the whole situation. Everything that was done that may look fishy to someone who doesn't understand military procedure was actually done for a very good reason, guarding against what we thought the most credible threat was. The, The thing with the aircraft carriers being out at sea Uh, we were trying to beef up Midway. So two of the aircraft carriers were kind of leapfrogging, going back and forth, delivering aircraft to Midway um, because we needed more additional aircraft reinforcements out there. And we never wanted to have 
Pearl Harbor unguarded. So that was why one aircraft carrier had to wait until the other one got back before it left. The third one was simply in San Diego for maintenance, so it was kind of out of the way. Um, that was planned anyway. And then while the second aircraft carrier that was coming back from Midway was out at sea, it got caught in a storm and was delayed getting back. And so unfortunately for a time, there was no coverage. That was unplanned, unforeseeable. Um, and uh, it just happened to match up very well with, uh, with the Japanese plans. And here's a big one. I, I, it's hard to believe. I've, I know you have, I'm sure. And I have spoken with people who honestly believe that the Twin Towers and that the Pentagon, the whole 9-11 thing, was mm -hmm. staged. And I'd like mm -hmm. you to explain what you've heard on that, what the biggest conspiracy theories are out there, and put an end to it forever right now. Here's your chance. <laughs> I can assure you that I will not put an end to that kind of conspiracy mongering. <laughs> uh, you know, if one of the reasons you say, what is the, what is the conspiracy? There is, no, there, is no one, there is no one theory about what happened. All of these claims are so disparate, you know, whether the planes were holograms, whether the planes were missiles that were painted to look like airplanes, whether they were piloted or remote piloted air airplanes, uh, whether there was no planes at all and the film was doctored. You've got all of these absolutely contradictory different versions. Um, you've got claims that, oh, there was thermite explosive, nano thermite explosive residue found in the debris and the debris was hauled away before it could be tested. It, I mean, it goes on and on and on and on. And every one of these claims is simply at odds with what everyone was there watching happen that day. Um, yeah, you, you had cars stacked up on 395 when the jet came in right over 395 and into the Pentagon. I mean, just how are you going to say those witnesses didn't exist? They Are, are, they, are yeah. they all lying? Hey. All, all you can do, all you can do, is say, "I believe that this is this is what I think happened, and that everyone who thinks otherwise is having the government pull the wool over their eyes or something." It's something that you just have to assert with no evidence, and you just have to expect that people are going to believe you. And again, it goes back to why people want to believe conspiracy theories. You know, it's 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 a it's a native tendency that we all have. It's it's an idea that's very attractive. This idea of having kind of superior insight into mm. into uh, powerful forces um, kind of makes you the only one who's safe because you're not one of the sheeple who has the wool pulled over their eyes. And there's all of these things that make it psychologically very attractive to believe in a conspiracy theory. But it's also it's also a, a, an evolved tendency that we all have anyway. Now the, Once, ho the Holocaust denial that's just. That's just anti-Semitism, right? It's it's pretty much straight up anti-Semitism. I have not yet engaged with a anti-Holocaust author who is not a, a very open anti-Semite. Suppressed science. Tell me a little bit about Tesla. Tesla is one of these guys. I mean, he was he was a very talented engineer, um, uh, early twentieth century um, electrical engineer and inventor. He was very gifted. He was probably five or, year, five or ten years ahead of his time, uh, but this was 75 years ago. Nothing that he did back then is unknown to science today, uh, not by a long shot. Um, what his forte was, was being the first to patent things in the United States. Um, there were a lot of these the things that he's given credit for. Um, he did do brilliant work on them, but he was rarely the first to do the brilliant work on them. Things like the AC induction motor was prototypes were running in Europe before he got one running here. Um, alternating current electrical grids were already being tested in Europe when he was born. He didn't get until get to the United States until his 20s, and he was able to set up one of his own and patented in the United States. That's where he made his money. <clears throat> Pardon me. It's where he made his money and his notoriety was in being the first to patent things in the United States. And he had this mystique around him. He was a weird guy. He was very eccentric. And he definitely had this mystique. He had all these strange personal habits. Um, the, the press loved him. He did, he did oddball things. Like, for example, we've all seen the famous photograph of him sitting in his laboratory with a giant Tesla coil throwing out lightning bolts all around him. And you look at this and you say, wow, that's magical. What powers must this man have? No one stops to think that this was actually a, a double exposure created by his publicist. So the, these magical powers that people attribute to, to Nikola Tesla 
they're, they're, they're simply not true. They're clearly at odds with the historical record. And you can pick up any biography about him and, and, and read the true facts. Nevertheless, he has become sort of this messiah to the alternative science and the conspiracy theory crowd who credit him with all these strange things like he invented free electricity, free energy, uh, miraculous death rays that could end all war, and that the government suppresses all of these things because they couldn't make profits if these products were out there. It's just kind of, you know, run-of-the-mill conspiracy mongering that's uh, simply at odds with established history. In that category, suppressed science, what's your next biggest topic? Sure, Nikola Tesla. I would, I would have to go with the, uh, the, the flat earth theory. Um, hmm. And it's not just the flat earth theory as it is today, which is closely tied with the conspiracy theory YouTube crowd. Um, kind of these people who are, uh, they just, they mistrust the government. And so anything we were taught in school must be wrong. And they, they hear stuff on, on YouTube that the earth is actually flat. And so they believe it. That's, that's all well and good, and we're all reasonably familiar with that phenomenon today. But what's interesting about the flat earth theory is that is its history and its genesis. Because in the mid-20th century, and going back into the 19th century, flat earthism was something that had nothing to do with this conspiracy mongering. It had everything to do with biblical literalism. It was Christian fundamentalists who were trying to prove the literal truth of the Bible. Apparently, there's a number of uh, verses in the Bible that can be interpreted as, therefore, the earth must be flat. Things to do with the shape of the firmament and, and things like that. Hmm. And so we've had this, this group, they were, and they were a very small group of people uh, who were uh, the Flat Earth Society. Um, they were actually incorporated as a church. And the interesting part about that is when the Mercury and Gemini programs started and we began to get photographs from orbit of the Earth as a sphere in space, um, the Flat Earth Society became the true genesis of what later evolved into the Apollo moon hoax. It was this, the space program must be falsified because they're sending us back these pictures that cannot be true because the Earth is actually flat. And that was the true trigger of the whole Apollo moon hoax, which is fascinating, and it's a wonderful connection that I just love. Space. Do you believe in aliens? So, not only myself, but pretty much everyone I've ever met in my field, of people who work in any science, people who are science writers, communicators, universally, I think, just about everyone um, is 100% confident that the universe is abounding with life. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think there's any sound doubt about that. However, whether people are visiting each other interplanetary-wise, uh, inter traveling between solar systems, is a very different question. Physics very much supports the idea of life throughout the universe. Physics very much opposes the idea of interstellar travel. So we are able to look at the evidence for and against aliens having visited the Earth, and so far that process has led us to a great big uh, zero, that there does not seem to be any reason to think Earth has been visited by aliens, nor, nor anywhere else. And of course, our understanding of physics, uh, pretty clear that that's a very difficult problem to solve if there is a solution for it. And none of them have ever departed significantly from known technologies. So the idea that 50 years ago we had some sort of anti-gravity craft that could fly silently and make radical maneuvers um, and nobody ever followed up on the technology, uh, nobody ever heard of it, it's not sitting in a museum anywhere, um, and yet the claim requires that it, it was, they decided to test it over a heavily populated city, which is, of course, an enormous departure from test procedures. As in Phoenix. Um, as in Phoenix, yeah. Um, it's, it, that's, it, it just, it just doesn't make any sense to me. It's, it's, it's too different from, from everything we know about the history of military aviation. <clears throat> yeah. One of the things I had to get past when I started doing what I do for a living is, is the idea that eyewitness reports must be taken as literal factual accounts that exactly reproduce what actually took place without any error. Um, that's hard for it was hard for me to get past that. It's hard for a lot of people to get past that. But there's simply too many, too many other far more likely explanations uh, for most reported strange things, whether it's a ghost or a UFO or what have you. 
Um, besides, the eyewitness's interpretation was literal, factual, unerring, and exact. Um, most likely, in most of these cases, people uh, misunderstand what they see. They misidentify things. They're simply mistaken. Um, there's too many sociological phenomenon that cause our memories to change over time when we start interacting and talking with other people who were present. In fact, I, I covered a couple of cases like this on an episode of my podcast a couple of weeks ago where people wrote in with their strange stories and we talked about them. Um, and what I find is most interesting is how these perceptual errors work and how the brain works and why it's possible for smart people to misinterpret something and come up with a crazy explanation or an explanation that's just too far out there. I mean, I had, I had a, uh, like I said, I love to dive down this rabbit hole. I could talk on, about this with you all day because it's my favorite subject. But I mean, I, I, was, I was out in Death Valley one time, uh, which is right near to um, uh, China Lake Naval Air Station. And, um, and we, we had a, a shared experience of something uh, enormous crossing the sky over our head that, that came around twice in the course of about half an hour. And it absolutely blew our mind. We couldn't figure out at all what it was until it finally came around the second time we realized it was a formation of aircraft doing aerial refueling there was the tanker at the front there's the plane that's getting refueling here's the other guys on his wings waiting for their turn in perfect formation just kind of orbiting um, in this e enormous circle but the first time we see this going over there there's in such stable formation and they have lights on them and it's such a dark night um, the the illusion that it was a single enormous perfectly silent craft was astounding it, it was almost a religious experience for me to see how compelling um, a mistaken identification like that can be and for me i find that uh, learning the true explanation of act of what it really was is always far more rewarding than embracing the the half the half-investigated version, which was, it was a UFO, it was an alien spaceship or some something gigantic, that's it, I don't wanna know anything more about it, I won't hear any explanations. And I, I encounter that far too often in my work. And I, what I try to do is I try to give people, I try to infect them with my own enthusiasm for finding out what's really going on. I just find that that's where the real rewards are. Well, on behalf of all your fans, I'm gonna ask the big question, when did you first find out there was no Santa Claus and how did you tell your parents? <laughs> uh, you were three. You were probably just able to talk. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I do remember. The funny thing about that is, I, I, I actually do remember. I have no idea what age I was, but you know, you look up in your flu, and it's a really skinny little pipe. And I remember, how does he actually do that? <laughs> Come on, it's, it's magic. <laughs> For crying no, I, knew out loud. I knew magic wasn't real. I wasn't. I, I thought he. I had mean, come some on. You know, he's it. not coming down on hot coals. <laughs> hey, nobody has wood fireplaces anymore. <laughs> Part seven: Urban legends. Oh, let's do Hurst and Hemp because I don't know anything about that one. So the this is a this is a conspiracy theory that was um, largely promoted by. Um, oh, I'm spacing out on his name. I'd have to turn to the page in the book. Basically, he's a marijuana activist from the, uh, I believe, from the 1960s, um, who who wrote a book that uh, that, among many other things, it talked about why marijuana is illegal. It talked about how marijuana secretly will will cure cancer, it will cure every other disease. It's a miracle drug. It's also a miracle product for industrial purposes. Hemp is the world's best product for just about any anything you can you can make. Best raw material for rope, for clothing, for paper. Well, why doesn't it exist? Why is it illegal in the U.S.? Why, does, why do no farmers plant it? And his belief was that William Randolph Hearst, the great uh, newspaper magnet, um, suppressed it be, to protect his vast timber holdings, which is the phrase you always hear, vast timber holdings, hmm. because he was in competition with it because he was selling paper for his newspapers. So that's, that's about it. And it's another case where we can look at the overall context of why this doesn't make sense, or we can go through the minutia of why the individual specific claims don't make sense. Well, first of all, Hearst was a buyer of paper, not a seller of paper. 
Second of all, it's very clear that he had no timber holdings. You can you can read any biography of him you want. You can look at all of all of the the statements of what was known about the businesses he controlled. He didn't own any timber holdings. He owned a paper mill very briefly, didn't work out, and he sold it. But he never had any timber holdings. He was a buyer of paper, not a seller. He would have benefited from competition in the marketplace. So he would have been the first on board with a with a viable competitor to a, a cotton or wood pulp based. How about Malaysia flight MH370? What's your take on that? So this was, you know, I was kind of reluctant to do this one because it's still an open question. The plane might be found tomorrow, might be found 10 years from now. Um, I do believe it will eventually be found. Um, but there were, um, there were a number of conspiracy theories surrounding the plane in the immediate days after it disappeared. Some people said it was secretly flown to an air base in China or Russia and the people were taken off and disposed of and you know, for one reason or another. Um, other people say the flight never existed. Um, other people say that the pilot must have committed suicide. And this is this is this was a case where my my connections in the aviation world were very helpful because uh, commercial air pilots had a fairly complete solution for what probably happened with this plane uh, very quickly because everything that it did from um, the movements that it made and everything were, were quite consistent with what normal emergency procedures would do if you suddenly had smoke in the cockpit. And there's a lot of things that can cause smoke in the cockpit. Uh, it had a large supply of lithium-ion batteries on board, which could have easily caught fire. Um, you simply have electrical fires on um, commercial aircraft from time to time. That's not unknown at all. And the maneuvers that they did were exactly in keeping with established emergency procedures for turning around and going back to the best airport to make an emergency landing. And they made several maneuvers in, in pursuit of that. And what seems to be the case is that uh, they were overcome and we don't know what overcame them, whether it was smoke, whether it was oxygen, depressurization. We don't have any way to know. Um, and the plane was just stuck on autopilot, flew south over the ocean until it ran out of fuel. And based on that theory, um, we have established some reasonably good search areas. Uh, there were also some satellite connection signals that were made. And by the timing of those signals, we know where along certain arcs that uh, the plane was at, at certain times. So we don't have zero information. We have some information. We have pretty good search areas, but those search areas are hopelessly enormous, um, literally hopelessly enormous. Was um, the black box found for that flight? Nope. Nothing has been found. Hmm. Now, some, some debris has a, been a found. A part of a wing was found, wasn't it, off on an island off of Madagascar? I believe last I heard, I believe seven pieces of it have uh, have floated ashore and have been found, and they are where and when they were found is consistent with where currents would have taken them if it went down in one of these search areas. And what's, what is the Flight 800? So 800 was, um, this ha actually happened uh, on my honeymoon. My wife and I had just left JFK Airport, oh, yeah. and one of the planes taking off right behind us was TWA Flight 800, uh, which hmm. exploded uh, just a few minutes after takeoff, killing everyone on board, of course. It's the plane that you've probably seen photos of um, largely reconstructed, in, in an NTSC hangar, hmm. um, which is a staggering amount of work that they recovered 90% of this aircraft from the floor of the ocean after it exploded into hmm. zillions of tiny That's pieces. Amazing. It, it is amazing. So, th so the um, urban legend is that uh, there was a missile fired at that? Yeah, that, uh, that uh, the U.S. shot it down for various reasons, or that maybe a terrorist on a boat shot it down with a shoulder-launched uh, missile. Um, I'm, I'm sure people have even said aliens shot it down, or that there was a bomb on board. But all of these, all of these um, external causes—either a missile from outside or a bomb on board—were pretty easy to exclude because these all leave telltale signs that are very obvious. Not just explosive residue, but uh, you know the direction of of uh, ragged edges of metal as as they were pushed aside by an explosion. So it, it was fairly trivial to rule out almost everything, including a meteor. They even checked into the idea that a meteor may have hit the plane as it was flying. What they know is that there was some spark inside the center fuel tank that ignited it and, and made it explode. What could have caused that tank? Well, there's all kinds of electronic gizmos, this and that, fuel pumps and things in there. 
And when we say we don't know what caused it, that doesn't mean that we don't have any idea. We've got a number of good candidates. We just don't have any way to know which of them it was. Okay. So it's like, likely to remain unsolved. But there's the interesting thing for me about, about that particular story was um, why we know that it wasn't um, a, a missile. As many eyewitnesses said, witnesses said they, they turned and they looked and they saw a light going up in, this, in the air. Um, it met the airplane, and then there was an explosion, and they heard a boom. And when you interrogate these people, and you look at where they were standing, and how far away they were from where the aircraft was, judging by the speed of sound, how long it would have taken them to hear this explosion, um, what they were looking at happened well after the explosion. Kind of interesting science facts like that that you put together, and you can you you know how we can we can learn more from the witness's story than the witness knew himself. Part eight, the biggest and baddest part you've got in the book. <laughs> and these are the true ones. So, yeah, like I said, um, the most requested uh, conspiracy theory story I get is which one was proven to be true? What are the true conspiracy theories? And there are six of them here in the book. Five of them I'm not going to say anything about. I want you to read it and let me know. Okay. Um, I am let not our persuaded. listeners know what the what the five topics are. Sure. So Pe- these their are the, curiosity. Uh, the CIA drugs for guns. That was a conspiracy theory that was later proven true by law enforcement. Um, military dolphins. The military secretly trains dolphins to kill people and things. The Gulf of Tonkin. COINTELPRO. And then, of course, MK Ultra. So I'm going to discuss why each of these was or was not a conspiracy theory, theory was or was not proven to be true. Um, and then the one, number six, that I'll talk about now is uh, numbers stations. Okay. This is the one that I think is the best case of what was genuinely a conspiracy theory and what was genuinely proven to be true. So numbers stations, if uh, people have, haven't heard of them, are not as common today as they were during the Cold War, but they do still exist. If you take a shortwave radio, and a shortwave radio is notable because it can transmit and receive all around the world, and you tune it to a certain station at a certain time of day on a certain day of the week, you would hear a regular broadcast. And this broadcast would consist of strings of numbers read by an automated voice repeated over and over again. And there were many of these numbers stations in many different languages. Uh, Spanish, Chinese, Russian, um, most of them in English. And the conspiracy theory was all was always that, oh, these must be governments transmitting instructions to their spies or communicating with their spies. And then kind of the, the more level-headed, non-tinfoil hat explanations were things like, well, they could just be oceanographic research buoys transmitting their data or weather stations, or something like that, that doesn't necessarily require a tinfoil hat explanation. So now let's fast forward to um, 9-11. Just a few days after 9-11, something happened in the Pentagon that almost nobody knows about because there were other things in the news. And that's that a senior Pentagon official was arrested for espionage for tuning into a popular numbers station from Cuba and uh, writing down the numbers, typing them into her laptop computer, and decrypting them. And they were indeed instructions from the Cuban government to her as a spy. And she was arrested by espionage. Turns out there have been many other such arrests, and numbers stations have figured into many of these Hmm. um, arrests in other countries, throughout Europe especially, and other ones in the United States. Um, People who... uh, we're getting their information from number stations. Uh, and uh, so that's definitely a case where the level-headed people were proven wrong and the tinfoil hat people were proven right. Very, and very I love interesting. It. And I wish there was more of those. <laughs> well, I know, that, I know that our listeners will enjoy getting a hold of your book. We'll leave a link in the show notes. And, of course, I know you're going to want to run this show for your fans as well because they're going to be very curious to hear about your book. And they'll get to, and hopefully they'll get to meet us as well at One Thousand One Heroes. Absolutely, yes. Um, I, I believe you live in Bigfoot country. Is that right? 
I do. Yeah, I permanently relocated from Southern California to Bend, Oregon. Uh, so you weren't you weren't ago. raised in the woods in Oregon. You actually moved there from California. I had to move here deliberately to try and find Bigfoot. Yes. <laughs> Have you had any luck? <laughs> well, almost. See, we've got this big tree. I've got nine acres here. We've got this enormous tree that's got the uh, uh, the, the beetle rot uh, that needs to be cut down. Okay. I can have them cut it down about 10 feet from the base mm -hmm. and have a chainsaw artist cut it into a Bigfoot. Ooh, that sounds so great. I do plan to encounter Bigfoot here. Have, have you run into any people in your state who actually claim they have either heard or seen them? I'm about to. Uh, I, I was uh, in a sporting goods store, and there was a flyer from the local Bigfoot club. Uh, I, unfortunately, I was out of town for the meeting that they were advertising, but I've I've been trying to get in touch with them over Facebook, and I'm hoping to have lunch with them or something uh, in the very near future here. So that's going to be fun. Well, I will look for you at the next Bigfoot conference then. <laughs> okay, please do. <laughs> Brian, it's been a pleasure having the opportunity to speak with you today. Uh, good luck on this on this uh, book of yours. And you have a few other books in print, is that correct? Yeah, they're, they're mostly published by our nonprofit, though. They are uh, book forms of uh, podcast compilations of the podcast episodes. Uh, so you can find all of those on Amazon as well. In fact, if you look at Conspiracies Declassified, or my name just as the author, Brian Dunning, you'll see all of these other books listed as well. All right, Brian, is, thank you. Yeah. Thanks for being a guest here at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We really appreciate having you on today. Thank you so much. It's been great. days, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make all kinds of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs in towns and cities across the country. And jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20.